Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. We begin a new series today called A God First Life. A God First Life. Let me me explain to you what that means. Why is it so important to have God first in your life? Why is that so important? We all know people who don't have God in their lives at all. And I think every one of us would say, Pastor, I, I don't ever want that to be me. But we also can look at moments in our life where every one of us have had God in our lives, but not first place in our lives. The reality is being off just a few degrees, the longer you travel through life, the more obvious it becomes. Listen to this statistics. Being off just one degree after one foot, you're off two tenths of an inch. Not a big deal. After a hundred yards, you're off five feet. Not too big of a deal. After a mile, you're off 92 feet. If you're driving from San Francisco to Los Angeles, you'll be off six miles. If you travel the globe, you'll be off 435 miles. If you're in a rocket to the moon, you'll be off 4,169 miles. If you're going to the sun, you'll be off 1.6 million miles. The truth is, All of us have found ourselves in places and predicaments in our life that we never, ever, ever thought we'd be in in our spiritual journey. Here's the reality. We choose what is first in our life, and that determines the direction of our lives. Let me explain to you about a defining moment for me. Many of you know I gave my life to Christ in a junior high school in the Mexican ghetto of Houston where a 1,000 kids gave their life to Christ in a week, and the pastor took me in and raised me like his own son. I moved in with him when I was 17, and we moved to Waco, Texas, where he pastored another church. But the real defining moment for me, outside of that night, when when I prayed with an African-American counselor in my junior high school, and I was born again, Christ came to live inside of me. The old Jacob died, a new one came alive. That moment instantly, I was delivered from drugs, from alcohol. I smoked two packs of cigarettes a day from the time I was nine years old. 90% of all those desires left me that moment. Pastor, what was the other 10%? I'm not telling you, God knows. You tell me your 10% and I'll tell you mine. Sometimes, maybe, probably not. Just pray about it. But the defining moment came for me when I met with my best friend. I'd given my life to Christ, and and it was about three or four weeks into my journey. And my best friend, I lived on Walker Street, 7024 Walker, and and, and Donald Wood lived right in front of me. He was my best friend. We've been best friends since the third grade. We, We dated the same girls. In a party one night, we might even kiss the same girl. Now that I look back on it, that was pretty gross. We played, come on now, I'm going to date myself, spin the bottle. Anybody here remember spin the bottle? Sick minds. And and I remember that I went over to Donald Wood's house. I'd I'd been born again at my school about four weeks before, three or four weeks before. And and I went over to his house and and all of the friends, our our three friends that we were close to, Gene St. Germain, he was a tall, skinny kid that had a rotten tooth. 
in the front of his mouth. And then there was Steve Kelly. He was two years older than all of us and we kind of looked up to him. And then there was Donald Wood and, and there was me. And we were in his backyard. Now I'm going to really date myself. There was a clothesline. Does anybody here remember a clothesline? Raise your hand. How many of you still have one? Raise your hand. God bless you, woman of God. That means something in heaven. I don't know what it means, but you can find out when you get there. And we went in between the sheets in the backyard, and, and one of them, Steve Kelly, pulled out a joint. Now, how many of you know what that is? That's not something that goes in your car. It was a marijuana cigarette, and he lit it up, and was the common habit of us in between the sheets where nobody could see us. And Steve Kelly lit it up and he went, there you go. And went to Gene St. Germain. Gene St. Germain, there you go. And he got to Donald Wood. There you go. They got to me. And I said, um, I, I don't want that anymore. And they went, why not, dude? I said, well, I, I, I gave my life <clears throat> to Jesus, and I don't want to do that anymore. I have something better. And they went, whoa. And Steve Kelly turned around and started walking away. And Gene St. Germain followed him. And then Donald Wood followed him. And they were walking away from the sheets. I can close my eyes. I can tell you what they were wearing that day. And I turned around and they were probably about from here to the front pew. And I started walking towards. And Steve Kelly turned around and he said, hey, we don't want you hanging with us anymore. Boogie, hook them, split, Leave. And in that moment, I had to decide that not only was I going to surrender to Jesus, was I going to surrender my friends to him too. And I remember just stopping that moment. I knew I had to make a decision. It was looking back on it as important as the decision to follow Christ. That was the second most important decision of my life. Because the Bible says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good people. You ever been in a room where people smoke? You don't have to smoke, but you come out smelling like them. And I, I just knew that I had to make a decision. I turned around and I walked home that day. It was a long walk home. It was only a block, but it seemed like a mile. I, I went home and that evening there was a, a youth rally like they had here. And I went to it. I told some of my friends what happened. And that kind of severed my relationship with those people. I would seldom ever see them again. I would see Donald and Gene at school, but Steve Kelly was older than us. He was not in our class. Let me fast forward now from 14 and a half to 19 and a half years old. When I was 17 and a half, my pastor announced he was leaving our church in the Mexican ghetto of Houston to go to Waco, Texas. And I walked up to him after service, like you see me shaking hands. He was back there and I said, if you leave, what happens to me? And he said, well, ask your mama if you can, she'll sign papers or you can go with me. So I went to my mama's bar where I was living. I said, mama, Pastor Keith is moving. And he said, if you sign guardianship papers, I can go with him. She said, bring the papers. 
signed the papers, and I moved with him. I moved there in the middle of my junior year. By the end of my senior year, by God's goodness and grace, I'd led 10% of the student body to Christ. And the principal of Waco High School, a public school, was so impressed, he allowed me to have a school assembly and to share my story about how Jesus changed my life. He began then, when I graduated from high school, calling other schools, asking them to have me. I would speak to two million students in public schools in the next 25 years. It began with Garland Bullock, my Christian principal, calling and opening up doors. I'm now 19 and a half years old. I've graduated from high school. At night, I was speaking during school in different churches and conferences. And by the time I I was 19 years old, I was traveling around, sharing my story. And a guy heard me who was from Wales, Great Britain. And he said, hey, you know, in England, you can have public school assemblies. It's mandated by the state and you can speak up freely about Jesus. Would you like to come for three weeks? And I said, sure. Now, this is really going to blow your mind. So I rode on Braniff Airlines. Anybody remember Braniff? Okay. I flew from Dallas, Fort Worth to London, Gadwick. Do you know how much it cost me? $69. And you know how much it cost me to come back? $79. And I was mad because I thought they ripped me off for $10. I couldn't get this jacket there. Shipped over for $69 today. I went for three weeks and, and I would go and I would speak in schools. And the school, I mean, the average church was about 200 people. Two or 300 students would come out at night and give their lives to Christ. And they began calling other churches going, you need to have this crazy Mexican. He's got a story and children come and follow him. And I just began and what was supposed to be three weeks ended up being three months. And I traveled England, Wales, Scotland, Belgium, France, Germany, sharing my story all over Europe. When I come back home, the first thing that I do is I, I want to go back and see my family, my mom. So I go back to my own neighborhood. I'm 19 and a half years old. I see my mom and them and I told her, I said, you know, mom, I, I want to go see Donald Wood, see what they're doing. I haven't seen him in a while. So I went over. Knocked on Donald Wood's door, and his mother came to the door. Her name was Lillian. She was Mexican. She said, Jacob, where have you been? Donald would love to see you. Donald Wood came out, looked just like he did before, hair down to here, you know, just walking. He goes, hey, dude, what are you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. And I began to tell him all the things that God had done in my life. And he looked at me, and he said, how did you get out of this hell? And I said, Donald, you remember that day when y'all were smoking weed between the sheets five years ago? That day, I made a decision who would be first in my life, and it led me to where I am. And you made a decision, and it led you right to where you are. You choose who or what is first, and that decides your ultimate destination. So why is it so important to have God first in my life and not just a part of my life? The religious leaders during the time of Jesus would sit around and they would debate which was the greatest commandment. There are 533 laws of Moses. You can go back and read the book of Deuteronomy. 
And, and listen to them. Well, how you eat, what you eat, when you eat, where you worship, how you dress, where, where you go to temple, all of these things. And so Jesus is answering questions from religious leaders. And this is the story in Mark chapter 12. Now, a certain religious scholar overheard him debating. And when he saw how beautiful Jesus answered, answered their questions, beautifully answered their questions, he posed one of his own. He asked him, teacher, which commandment is the greatest or the first? And Jesus answered, the most important of all commandments is this, the Lord Yahweh, our God is one. And you shall love the Lord Yahweh, your God, with a passionate heart from the depths of your soul and with every thought and with all of your strength. This is the greatest and supreme commandment. And the next verse says that to love your neighbor as yourself is the second one. Now let's see this principle applied to a story that Jesus told to illustrate this. To illustrate it further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. One was a younger son. And he told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed up all of his belongings and moved into a distant land. And there he wasted all of his in while living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into the fields to feed. Now, if you said pigs to a Jew, that's the most unclean animal there is. Here's this Jewish kid now eating pigs. When Jesus is telling this story, the other Jewish leaders are going, what? No Jewish child would ever do that. The young man became so hungry that he, even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, and when he finally came to his senses, and when he finally, listen carefully to me, parents. How many of you are praying that your children get it? Quit pulling them out of the pig pen and maybe they will. Quit sending them your credit card number. Quit enabling them. Quit giving them more things that keep them actually as a hindrance to what you're praying. God touched them and God going, I would if you take your hands off. That deserved a better response, but okay, I'm good with that. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home to my old man. I mean, my father. And I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned both against heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but please take me just like one of your hired servants. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him coming. How did he see him coming? He'd been praying and he'd been waiting. He'd been praying and he'd been waiting. He'd been praying and he'd been waiting. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son and he embraced him and he kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. We don't know what happens, but his father stops him in the middle of the story. Stop, I've heard enough. You know you sinned against God. You know you've sinned against me. Isn't it amazing how humility 
will soften your heart towards people who've done terrible things to you. But his father said to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet. Kill the fatted calf. We go into Ruth's Chris tonight. We must celebrate with the feast for this son of mine who was, has now returned to life. And he who was, has now been found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the other brother was still out working in the field. When he returned home, he heard a Mardi Gras parade going on. And he asked one of the servants going, what's going on? They said, your brother is back. He was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We're all getting dressed. We're all going to Ruth's Chris tonight because he returned home safely. And the older brother was angry and would not go in. His father came out and begged him. And he replied, all of these years I have slaved for you. And never once did you do a single thing for me. And even in my friends, yet this son of yours comes back after squandering all of your money on, how did he know? Was there Instagram? Was he sending out Snapchats from the big bin? You celebrate by killing one of the best calves we have. His father looked at him and said, look, dear son, you've always stayed with me and everything I have is yours. Now, when Jesus was telling this story, he was identifying God and the people that were in the crowd. So who did the father represent in this story? The father represented God. And who did the two sons represent? Us, the people. Here's what the story means. The younger prodigal son was Mr. I did it my way. Listen to the words that describe him in this story. Give me what is mine. Do you know during biblical times, the time that you received your inheritance is when your father died. So you know what he was saying to his father? I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. He wasted it. Boy, isn't it amazing how wise his father was before not to give it to him until he demanded it? God will not give you what you can pray for. He will give you what you can manage. And as soon as he got what he couldn't manage, he squandered it all. He was unrestrained. My father can't stop me now. And he spent all. And in the end, he himself was spent. Now, I want to ask you a question. This is a sincere question. I want you to think about it. How many of you have ever been a younger prodigal son in some way towards your parents? Raise your hand. Okay. I'm tired of this. Y'all tell me what to do. I'm going to get out of this house. I'm a grown man. I can do whatever I want to do. And your dad said, okay, give me the car keys, the credit card, and get after it. How can I get out of here? I don't know, but you're a grown man. Figure it out. Now watch this. This is a sincere question. Did the younger son love his father? Let me ask you, when you did that, did you love your parents? But who were you putting first? Your parents or yourself? 
You see, I can never think of a moment in my life when I didn't believe in God. Never. Never a moment in my life where I didn't believe in Jesus. Come on. Mexicans name their children Jesus. Seriously. When's the last time you met a white guy named Jesus that wasn't actually Jesus? When's the last time you met a brother named Jesus who wasn't on crack? We name our children Jesus. I've always believed in God as a part of my life. I just never made him first place in my life. I never made him first place in my life. Now, let me ask you this. Let's look at the older brother, Mr. I did it all right. Now, let me share this with you. That's something you don't know. In Jewish culture, the oldest son gets two-thirds of all the inheritance. Do you know why? It's his job to take care of his parents in their old age. Who was the oldest son in Jesus' family? This isn't a trick question. Okay, Mary was a virgin when she had Jesus. Who was the oldest son? What was the last thing Jesus did on the cross? He looked down at John and said, behold your mother, mother behold your son, because that was his responsibility, and he left it to John the beloved. Now watch this. So in reality, all the inheritance that was left, who did it belong to now? The older brother. So whose stuff was he actually taking care of? His own. Why was he mad that his daddy killed the best calf they had? Whose calf really was it going to be? His. He did all the right things, but he's angry when his father is happy. He says, I slayed for you, meaning there wasn't a lot of happiness with doing what he was doing. He said, I've always obeyed you, contrasting to his brother. I'm not like my brother. And then he says, you never gave me. Yes, this son took from you. And then he says this, this son of yours, he's now not even a part of the family. Is it possible to live a moral right lifestyle and still be doing it for all the wrong reasons? That's exactly what Jesus was pointing out to them. So in the first part of this story, which one of these brothers lived a God first life? Answer, neither one of them. Now, let me tell you this last story in two minutes and we'll close up. Jesus tells us a picture. Mark gives us a picture of Jesus having an encounter with this God first principle again in Mark 10, 17. Listen to what it says. And as Jesus was going on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what should I do that I might inherit eternal life? Hey, I'm a pastor. That's a great question. People walk up to me and go, I want to know how to know God and to go to heaven. I'm like, I'm your guy. What should I do that I might inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There is no one good, but one is that is God. And then he begins to recite something to him. I want you to count with me. You know, the commandments do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And this rich young man said to him, Teacher, all of these I've kept since I was a kid. 
Let me tell you something. If we had someone like that in our church, he'd be a trustee. Ken, he might replace you. Have you never lied, never stolen, never? I'm not going to get on the adultery thing. I know that. But I mean, are you just, just think of this guy. Is there anybody here that's never lied, stolen, ever? Raise your hand because now you'll prove that you are a liar. So I want to ask you a question. Now, this is a deep theological question. You got to answer it real quick, okay? I'm not going to kick you out of the church if you get it wrong. But I'm going to give you a win. You ever just needed a win? This is going to be a spiritual win for you. How many of the Ten Commandments are there? Y'all are good, man. Y'all are good. I can tell y'all been hearing some good preaching around here. How many of the Ten Commandments are there? Six of the commandments pertain to relationship with man and four pertain to relationship with God. What commandment did Jesus not quote to him? Keep the Sabbath day holy. This man was still even thinking about work and his possessions on the day he should be resting and honoring God. What big one did he not quote to him? You shall have no other gods before you. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He left out the most important one. And now listen to what it says. Teacher, I've kept all of these since my youth. And Jesus looking at him. Come on, say it with me. Say it loud. Say it louder. He loved him. You know what's so amazing about Jesus? He knows what's most important in your life. Like you could, you could come to church and you could like fake the funk. Like praise the Lord. You were cussing before you got out the car to people that were pulling in the traffic because they were going too slow. Okay, you were, you were down in Margaritas. Like you were living in Margaritaville. I mean, you were, you were okay. Hey, but, but like you come to church like, Can I tell you this? If you were parting or if you were praying last night, Jesus still looks at you and loves you. What's so overwhelming about God? There's things that I've done. I don't want my wife to know. I don't want my children to know. I don't want anybody to know. I wish I didn't know them. But you know who does know them? And the most amazing part about God is he's the only one that knows everything about me and he is still the one who loves me the most. (sighs) And regardless of where you are right now, regardless of whatever place God is in your life, I get the keyboard player up wherever place he's at. Regardless of wherever you have God in your life, listen to me. He loves you. He's not mad at you. He's not waiting for something bad to happen to you to slap you down. He, just like he looked at this young man, did Jesus know what was most important to him? What's the answer to that? Of course he did. Of course he did. He came walking up. Jesus got a text from heaven. Worth 2.5 billion, raised in a rich family, never missed church, goes to Sunday school every week, reads the Bible every day. Money is his God. 
Listen to what happens. Then Jesus looking at him, what? Loved him. And he said, there is one thing you lack. What one thing was it? It was the one greatest thing. And he's going to put his finger on it. Go your way. Sell what you have. Give it to the, and you will have treasure in heaven. And now come and take up your cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and he went away for he had, let me retranslate that. Anything you can't give up, you don't have it. It has you. Great possessions had him. What was first in his life? This moral, good, religious man. What was first in his life? Who's asking the right questions to the right person? Jesus. What was first in his life? But look at me. He was rich here on earth, but the moment that he took his last breath, he was going to be bankrupt at the place that mattered most. I told you a couple of weeks ago, and Pastor Chris started off telling, if you want this to be the best year of your life, it's got to be the best year spiritually of your life. That you are a spiritual person having a temporary earthly experience physically here on earth. And if you want this to be the best year of your life, it's got to be the best year spiritually of your life. So I want to ask you another question. I want you to think about it a moment. What's the greatest sin in the world? What's the greatest sin in the world? Is it murder? Is it child abuse? Is it abortion? Is it some sort of sexual perversion? What is the greatest sin in the world? Well, the greatest sin in the world can only be revealed by the greatest commandment in the world. And Jesus told us what the greatest commandment was. To love God with all of your soul and strength. So the greatest sin in the world is to not love God with all of your heart. To not put him first. I have the privilege and the honor of being with many people before they pass into the next life. It's amazing. It's like when DeMar Hamlin died on the field, the NFL found Jesus. For the first time, they were bowing for the right reason. Literally. And do you know why? And do you know why every single company and every single NFL team wore his number and every one of them knelt in the middle of the field and prayed regardless of where they had God first in their life? Because when you get to the end, it's very clear what's going to last. But wisdom is seeing what's clear now before you get to the end. It's putting God first now. Now. Before you get to the end. So, Pastor, how how do I put God first? Three minutes. Loving God 
and putting him first is never a chance. It's a choice. It's an act of my will. I must daily choose to put God first. Daily. I must daily take up my cross, just like Jesus said, because every inside of me, even when Christ comes to live inside me, there's still some old pulling of the old Jacob. How many of you got some of the old Jacob in you? God help you. You know what it's like? You ever drove in a car and the front end's out of alignment? You get in and it just pulls this direction and you're driving all the way like this. People go, well, you know I'm just driving. I'm out of alignment. I, I recognize that every day the old Jacob has to be put at the cross so that the new Jacob that Christ lives in can be strong. That's what Jesus said to him. Take up your cross and follow me. Here's the second thing. Loving God and putting him first is not an emotion. It's a decision. Because sometimes we hear loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. You're just going, Pastor, I, I, I hear you, and I know that's in the Bible and everything, but, but like, I don't feel that. Let me ask a question. How many of you here work out regularly? Raise your hand. Okay, those of you that didn't raise your hand, you need to. Just a word from the Lord. Okay, so raise your hand if you work out regularly. Raise your hand. Come on, raise your hand. Okay, how many of you work out only when you feel like it? Raise your hand. Okay, you don't work out. This is not an issue of emotions. The word emotion means in motion. It's always changing. And when God commands you to love him, you can't command an emotion. I could call any of you up here and say, I'm gonna give you $1,000. Do you want it? You'd say, yes. I'd say, okay. Be sad and cry. No, be sad and cry. And then I'd say, okay, be happy. <laughs> Laugh hysterically. Okay, be mad. <sighs> Bulldog. You know why? Because you can't command emotions, but you can command decisions. You can command decisions. Here's the third thing. Loving God and putting him first every day in my life becomes a priority. And those of you who've worked out for years, it is not just a priority. It just becomes a part of me. <laughs> it goes from being a priority. Just, it's, it's what you do. I, that's why we've challenged every one of you to start your year off with the first 15. Five minutes praying. Five minutes putting on a worship song. And worshiping, just sitting, just like we did, just, just worshiping, just, just inviting the presence of God. And then five minutes reading God's word. The first 15, if you'll give God the first 15, watch and see how it transforms the rest of your day. Watch and see how it transforms the rest of your day. So today, maybe you were the younger prodigal son was. Like you just done it your way, man. I got good news for you. Come home to your father today by repenting so we can all join the party and get started at the transformation of your life rejoicing. Maybe you're the older prodigal son, like you've always done it right. And sometimes even when you do it right, you see other people get further than you, but you're still doing it right and you can't figure out why they get along further than you. Hey. Doing what's right is only right when you do it for the right reasons with the right heart.
Maybe you're like the rich young ruler. You've always been blessed. You have friends, family, business. But you've not put God in the right place in your life. Listen carefully to me. Until you put God first in your life, everything you taste you think will be sweet by the time you swallow it will be sour because you were made to live forever in temporary things, no matter how good they are, never satisfy. They don't. They don't. A little boy had just come home from church. At church, they'd given him, like we do, a little globe, a little picture of the world, and they were to color it in. Dad walked in his room, and he, he was kind of tearing it up. Dad was kind of aggravated with him, and plus he wanted him to do something that would take up some time so he wouldn't, wouldn't watch TV. And he said, son, he said, you, you tore that picture of the, the world, the globe up. He said, here's some tape. Daddy wants you to tape it all back together. He walks into the next room, starts changing from church. Three minutes later, the little boy comes walking in, all taped together. He said, how, how, how did you finish this quick? He said, oh, Daddy, it was easy. On the other side of the globe was a picture of Jesus. And when I put Jesus back together, my whole world came back together. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 6, 33. Look, but seek first the kingdom of and his righteousness and all these things will be. God will never be an add-on, but things can be. They can be. There is nothing wrong with having an abundance of things. Some of the most amazing people in the Bible were amazingly blessed with great wealth. But there's a lot wrong with those things having you. A lot. Next week, I'm going to be speaking on a God-first marriage. You say, well, Pastor, why did you start here? Because if you can't love a perfect, loving holy, blameless, compassionate, kind God, your mate doesn't stand a chance. The love that you need to sustain a marriage comes from God to you, through you, to your mate. Next week, I'm going to tell you how 50% of marriages end in divorce, sometimes 55%. Second marriage is 60%. Third marriage is 70%. I'm going to tell you how you can go from that to one out of every 1,500 marriages ending in divorce. It's by having a God-first marriage. I'm going to talk to you about that next week. How many of you know people that are struggling in their marriage? Raise your hand. Get them here next week. Get them here next week. Would you bow your head with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that the truth of your word is eternal. And because we were made eternally, when we hear it, it pierces our heart. It goes deep into the core of our being. And in those moments, it's not head to head. It's words from your heart. They're eternal to our heart. It was made to live forever. 
today with every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't know where God is in your life. I don't know where he is. But until you put him first, until you put him first, your world won't come together. You'll still be trying to figure it out. Figure it out. And now with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. Isn't that good enough? Well, Jesus said this, unless a man or woman is born again, they won't see the kingdom of heaven. Unless a man or woman is born again, they won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, don't be surprised that I tell you, you must be born again. You mean being christened, being baptized, joining the church isn't good enough? That's a great start, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus looked at a religious man named Nicodemus and said, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you won't see or enter the kingdom of heaven. Every person born since Adam and Eve has been born spiritually dead. You never come spiritually alive until you receive Jesus by faith and are born again and turn away from your sins through repentance. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask you, are you ready to be born again today? I'm going to count to three. And if that's you on the count of three, if you're here and you say, Pastor, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but I've never prayed to be born again. It only happens once, just like the day you were born. Pastor, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? I want to be born again. I want God to be first in my life. On the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm just going to pray for you right at your seat. I'm the only one looking. One, God brought you here. Two, even through the adverse circumstances you've been through this week and the rain to come, God brought you here for a reason. Now's your time to know God, to be born again, and to start new. Three, if that's you, lift your hand high. I want to pray for you. One, two, high. Three, four, five, six. Anywhere else? Anywhere else? All right. Now, church, let's pray out loud with those that raise their hand to be born again today. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my guilt, my sin, and my shame, and you died for it. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go. And you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn away from sin to be born again. Today, God is my Father, Jesus is my Savior, and I'm born again in Jesus' name. Amen.